This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again, Axis Church. My name is Brooks. It's my privilege, my joy, my honor to be one of the pastors here at the Axis. And welcome, especially if you are a guest, we say welcome. We are so thankful that the Lord led you here this morning. We, we believe that's, that's true, and you have been prayed for. And we are currently in our sermon time in the middle of a, stu- a study through the Gospel of Luke, specifically with an eye for seeing Jesus, the, the Son of God, for who he really is. Jesus Christ said, there is life found in no other name. And so we want to have absolute clarity on who Jesus is and what he accomplished, not based on what religion says, not based on what culture says, but based on what Jesus Christ said and, and what he did. So this is our, our task. And today we continue following Jesus as he is making his way up to Jerusalem. This will be the, the final Jerusalem journey he is on. He is on his way to, to suffer and die brutally on a cross as a sin-covering sacrifice for any who would place their faith in him. So this is before him. His face is set to this task. And along his way to Jerusalem, he is still teaching. He is still healing. And in, in our specific context this morning, we are on the heels of four back-to-back parables that Jesus just gave us. The first three are about how God loves to seek and to save those who seem the most unsavable, those who seem the most lost. God loves to save them. So if you come in this morning and you say, if you had any idea my background, what I carry in, the things I've done that nobody knows about, you would say I'm unsavable. And no, I wouldn't because God says you are exactly who I love to save. In the first two parables, it says that heaven throws a party over one sinner who repents. That's amazing. And then last week, we had that hard parable of the dishonest manager, which culminated in this takeaway, Luke 16, verse 13. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then this line, you cannot serve God and money. So so that's where we left off. And now before we move into our text this morning, which is another weighty, dense text, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help again. Father in heaven, thank you that you are the kind of God who loves to seek and to save those who are very lost. And I know for me personally, that that is gospel. That is good news. Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you would empower me to be faithful to the text that you inspire to be written. If I say anything that is off or unhelpful, may it just fall by the wayside. And I pray, Lord, for all who hear my voice now. I pray that you would expose the utter bankruptcy of the false gospels that we believe And we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning in all of its glory and all of its beauty. So do that now for the salvation of many, for your glory and for our joy. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, again, Jesus has just ended the last parable saying, you cannot serve God and money. Now, sometimes the things that Jesus says are not immediately obvious what he means. This isn't one of them. Jesus has a very specific bullseye he is aiming with these, with these words. See, chapter 16 of Luke tells us that he was actually speaking to his disciples when he told that parable, but there were others who were listening in on, and Jesus knew this, and we see that he hit his mark with these words. They accomplished exactly what they were meant to accomplish. So Luke 16, beginning in verse 14, I don't have slides for us this morning, so I encourage you to please open your, your scriptures and follow along with me, because it is vitally important that you see this isn't my opinion, that, that this is the word of God. Verse 14, so you cannot serve God in money. Well, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, the Pharisees, who, by extension, Jesus is saying, were despisers of God, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. That word literally means to turn up their nose at him. They sneered at Jesus for saying these things. He had hit his mark, you see. A very significant shift has just taken place. At the beginning of Luke 15, before these parables, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They did not like that Jesus was associating with the unclean, because that is something they would never do, and everybody knew it. And so Jesus is tacitly undermining their authority there, so, so they grumble. But now things have gotten personal. Jesus, in teaching the crowds, puts his finger directly on a nerve and exposes their hypocrisy. He, said, he has just taught that you can't serve God in money because the love of money is really the love of self. Money itself is, is amoral. It's a tool. But in this fallen world, it can be a means to get status and power and security and comfort, all of the things that the Pharisees loved and everybody knew it. So the love of money is really the desire to be a demigod, to be the ruler of your own world, to be the sovereign of your kingdom. The Pharisees loved money, and so they ridiculed Jesus now. He had struck a nerve. And what we see, the real essence of this conflict that we are privy to this morning is it is a battle between competing Gospels. That's what it is. And here's something that's vitally important for us to understand as, as thoughtful Christians. Everybody in the world believes in a Gospel. Everybody in the world holds some confession of faith, some belief as to what will bring ultimate fulfillment, what, what is ultimately good news to you. That's a gospel. Earlier this week, I went into a coffee shop to, to think through and do an initial reading through this text and just try to soak in it a little bit. And, and the shirt of one of the baristas said, and this was company issued, it had a quote from a singer, and, and it said this, 
Don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. I like this coffee shop. I'll be back. This is not an indictment on them, but that is a gospel proclamation. It, it, it just is. That, that is a proclamation that good news is to be found in being autonomous in creating an identity with no reference to anybody else, including God. And if anybody questions it, they are to be stiff-armed. Don't you ever let somebody tell you that. Well, then what if Jesus has something to say? This is what I'm talking about. I'm not saying boycott anything. I'm saying understand that gospel messages abound everywhere. That, that is a proclamation of good news. It is a deeply held religious conviction. Our lives are lived in the middle of a spiritual war between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Thoughtful Christians realize this. And this is not dissimilar to what is happening in our text today. Because the reality is false gospels abound both outside of the church and inside the church. Jesus had been proclaiming his gospel, the, the true capital G gospel, which is the good news that anyone can be forgiven of any sin and that God the Father stands arms outstretched waiting to receive even the most wayward child if they let him speak into their reality and tell them the truth of what's going on with their soul. And in doing so, he exposed the Pharisees' secret idol, money, status, power, self-glory, all that is caught up in that. Everything they placed their hope in, Jesus had said, didn't get them one inch closer to the kingdom of God. And in fact, disgraced, dejected, prodigal sons who fed pigs out of desperation were light years closer to the kingdom of God than they were. Hence, they ridiculed him. They heard all these things and they felt the sting of conviction in their spirit, which is total grace to feel conviction. That means you, you are awake, at least, to, to, to the battle for your soul. And they ridiculed Jesus. And we see in chapters 15 and 16 that when we are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which exposes our false gospels for what they are, we really only have two possible responses. One, we can, we can repent and turn from the gospel that we believe that cannot save, of, of self-actualization or of sex or of fame. We can repent of that and enter into the eternal kingdom of God through Christ, which is what we saw at the end of the first two parables, Luke 15, 10, for one. I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, turns. Repentance is a sweet word. That's one response. Or we can ridicule and reject Jesus, reject the true gospel and set ourselves up as the ultimate authority. One thing we cannot do when we are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ is remain neutral. Tragically here, the Pharisees chose to ridicule and reject Jesus. They chose to double down on their damnation. The stakes really are that high. That just really is the reality that we're caught up in. The enemy wants you to think, this is all not that serious, just chill out. That is false. 
You will either be in the kingdom of God for eternity or you will be outside of it. So as we go through Jesus' rebuke, there's a reason it's so pointed. It is, it is very urgent. And one of the great dangers for us when reading a story about the Pharisees, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, is to just assume up front, okay, well, clearly that's not me, so now I have clarity on who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. I'm on Team Jesus and then the bad guys are over there. Growing up, that's how I always read the scriptures, which is sign number one that I'm probably one of the Pharisees who needs to hear it. So that is the one thing we must not do. We must be open to this rebuke of Jesus and see where it lands in us, where it exposes us, and where Jesus means to bring healing balm through his gospel, because every one of us is tempted to trust in a false gospel. So as we turn to the remainder of our text, here is how I want to approach it. I want us to point by point see how Jesus' rebuke reveals why the true gospel is so beautiful and why every one of us desperately needs it. That's how we're going to approach this. We're going to take these scriptures, this rebuke of Jesus, and like a light, shine it into the diamond of the gospel and see how it, how it refracts, as it were that makes sense. So I see at least four ways that this text shows the supremacy of Christ's gospel compared to any other. And the first is this. Number one, we need a better justification. We need a better justification. Verse 15, the first part. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's responding to their ridicule, and he says to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You are those who justify yourselves before men. The Pharisees thought that God graded on a curve. They thought they could be justified through comparison. That's part of their gospel. The good news that I'm better than somebody else. And since they were the religious elite, since, since they were the holy establishment, if, if anybody was getting in, well, of course, they're in. I mean, look at the sinners and the tax collectors. Compared to me, do you see the comparison? Pretty obvious, who's in? They justified themselves before men. And this hits on something that is true of every human, believer in God or rejecter of God. Every human knows that they can't even live up to their own moral standard. And therein lies the great tension. Because we are image bearers of God, which means we are meant to bear God's image. And we don't do it perfectly because God is holy and we have sinned and we feel the tension. So what do we do when we feel the tension of exposure? We reach for a justification Anybody who has children knows you don't need to teach them how to justify themselves when they are caught in sin. We're born experts at justifying ourselves, and we got it from our first parents right after the first sin. You, you, you remember what Adam said to God when, when he asked him why he disobeyed? That woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Double justification, okay. In this whole equation, it's everybody's fault but mine. That was the first response to the first sin. And then what was Eve's response? Serpent made me do it. 
We are those who justify ourselves. And Jesus is calling it out. The Pharisees employed the same tactic that humans have always done. They justified themselves. They found their righteousness by comparison because they thought God graded on a curve. And this statement from Jesus, if we're honest, should stop each one of us in our tracks. And I know it does me because I am an expert at self-justification. I have done it 10,000 times this week. And that is such a bummer when you're working through this text. And you realize, I am the one who justifies. I'm spring-loaded towards it. So do you know what I need? I need a better justification. What we need, friends, for peace with God is a better justification. And this is at the center of the gospel. It's the proclamation of good news of total, complete, eternal justification through Christ Jesus for anyone who will just stop trying to justify themselves and will just humbly say, it's all true. It's all true. There's even more than you know about. There's even more than I know about. I was too drunk to remember. (laughs) Any bad news is probably true. Lord, help me. Oh, God throws a party when he sees that. That is so much better than trying to justify ourselves. Man, Romans 3 is so awesome to this end, beginning in verse 22. You can jot it down to read later if you want. 3, 22 through 24. He says, For there is no distinction between people, between Pharisees and Gentiles, between religious and irreligious, between millionaires and homeless, between private school kids, and gang members. There is no distinction because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all can be justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the great leveler of all humans. God is no distincter of persons. He does not grade on a curve. My my wife is, is a lawyer and she will sometimes tell me about clients that she has who they're they're in the courtroom they are far from innocent but they feel a compulsion to speak up to justify themselves to the judge and she has to tell them to shut up because they're not going to do themselves any favors they need to trust her to be their advocate and when it comes to proving why we are worthy of god's grace we must let christ do all of the talking if we seek to justify ourselves before god he won't defer to our verdict ever. Because we were saying, I don't need your son. Here's all the reasons why you should accept me. God doesn't grade on a curve. God grades totally on the cross. It is pass, fail. It is total receiver of God's grace, or it is a rejecter of God's grace. The Pharisees in the Axis Church needs a better justification than our own attempts We need one that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We desperately need this beautiful gospel because, one, we need a better justification, but, two, we need heart transformation. That's what we need, and Jesus shows us here again. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. That is, God has intimate 
and exhaustive insight into every motive of your soul. Jesus' warm embrace of sinners, his welcoming of tax collectors, they hated them, caused the Pharisees to ridicule Jesus, which revealed the truth of their hearts, which was hidden probably even to themselves beneath layer upon layer, bedrock upon bedrock of religious pride and performance. As Jesus tells them elsewhere, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so their hidden heart had just leaked. That's what the ridicule was. It was, aha, there, there it is. And they maybe were able to hide their motives from others and themselves, but not from God. And Jesus makes them look at it. And friends, this is why they and us desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's a better gospel. Because we cannot hide from God. And apart from Christ, our hearts are hopelessly hidden and bent in on ourselves. And, and we, like the Pharisees, don't need behavior modification. We need heart transformation. And this is something, friends, that we are totally incapable of doing on our own. We can try and change some bad habits. We can try and, and be a little nicer. We can give our lives to social justice even. But the root problem that is common to fallen man remains, and it is a heart that is hostile to God's sovereign claim over our lives. This is our culture. Nobody will tell me who I am and who I will be. I am hostile to any claim over who I am. The, creature makes, the creator makes claims, though. And this reveals the beauty of the gospel. Ezekiel 36, 26. The prophet Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God, looking forward to the new covenant, says that covenant, is, this is included in that. This is an aspect of that. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove, I'll, I'll extract that heart of stone that's racked with sin from your flesh, and I will give you a new heart of flesh. And notice who does all the initiating here. This is a sovereign, unilateral act of God Almighty in saving sinners. Grace upon grace. The moment we are justified by faith in Christ, we are regenerated. We are born again. Our hearts are transformed. And now the fact that God knows us fully and completely is no longer frightening. Because when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And he is well pleased. These hard words of Jesus might appear tough, which they are. But they are so full of grace because the truth is our hearts are so hidden and so bent that it takes divine excavation to unearth them. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And it is the most gracious thing he could do because it's not until you come into the light that you can find good news. It's not until you're honest about the bad news that you see the beauty of the good news. Jesus is not being harsh here. This is what love requires of this moment. We desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ, not a false gospel. 
Firstly, because we need a better justification. Two, we need a heart transformation. And then our text today reveals, three, we need divine exaltation. That's what we need. The end of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So he's saying your gospel leads to exalting things before men and I'm saying God hates that with intensity. This is very strong language which should give us pause again. When God says he abominates something, he has my attention. And Jesus says he abominates what is exalted among men. Now specifically here, what is being exalted among men by the Pharisees? What did they put forth as supremely glorious and valuable before men? It was, it was themselves. The text has already told us that they, they loved money, which in their mind put them in a different stratosphere of worth. But elsewhere, we are told that the Pharisees made a practice of sounding trumpets when they gave to the poor. They, they were willing to part with some of their precious money as long as trumpets were sounded and everybody looked at them and saw just how pious they were. Jesus said that God abominates that when we try to exalt ourselves with no reference to him. Why? Why? Why does God abominate that? Well, I can see at least two reasons why. Number one, God is the creator of everything. And so when the creature takes God's stuff and then props himself up with it, and calls God's creation to look at them and worship, that is glory extortion from the creator. And God says, I don't, I will not abide that. I will not share my glory with another. And then secondly, even more so, we're rebels against the king at heart. And so we are doing so as sinners. And Jesus says God abominates that. Putting a highlighter on our holiness and piety compared to others, God hates because it shows that we pay no mind to our true condition and to what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is why, friends, social media and the advent of self-facing cameras was a dangerous age. They're wonderful tools. I'm not anti-Skype. I'm not anti-any tool. All I'm saying is it makes it so much easier to exalt ourselves amongst men. We love it. We love to put filters on it to make it look even better. I'm not against photography. I do photography. I'm not against, I'm not against any of that. All I'm saying is we need to be very careful and check our heart's motive. Am I trying to exalt myself? Is that where my worth is found at all the like? This is why rebellious, glory-exhorting sinners desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it, we find the unbelievable generosity of God towards us. When we humble ourselves, when we admit our great need, when we lay down our arms, God immediately bestows on us the honor of becoming an heir with Christ. Talk about exaltation You should long for exaltation on God's terms. 
Scripture says this, 1 Peter 5, 6. I didn't make that up. That's not heresy. (laughs) Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you on his terms. I added that at the end. I think it's faithful. And the Apostle Paul expands on this theme, showing us what this exaltation through the gospel, not disconnected to God, but caught up in the redemptive history of God, ultimately looks like. And it is so breathtaking, it, it defies comprehension even now. Someday we'll understand. But Ephesians 2, 5 through 7 says this, When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he has exalted us. He has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. God means for us to be stunned for eternity that he is that gracious and that kind. It's it's a design. So when we are exalted on his terms with Christ, we're not extorting glory. We're expanding and fulfilling and showcasing the glory of God. Not that we add to it, but we put it on display. He gets the glory, we get the joy. That is the gospel. It's a better gospel than self-exaltation. Oh, self-glory is such a small, suffocating world. That was one of the chief insights I had at 2011 when God did a reformation in my heart. Used to be in a band, lived for the appraise of men. Love music, not against music. My heart wasn't right. And I realized, really, like that's your end game as an image bearer of God? Applause. Sad. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. And we are seeing why we so desperately need the true gospel. Remember, that's how we're looking at this. Number one, because we need a better justification. Number two, we need heart transformation. Number three, we need divine exaltation. And fourthly, we need a law-fulfilling substitution. We need a law-fulfilling substitution. Verses 16 and 17, keep tracking with me because this gets dense. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, that's how Jesus would refer to it, the law and the prophets were until John. It's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and now everyone forces his way into it. But don't think I've annihilated the law, because it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's a lot. Let's work through this. This is a dense and momentous verse because Jesus is revealing that a new covenant has been established. See, John the Baptist is one of the most unique characters in all of Scripture because he stands at the hinge point in redemptive history. Up until his arrival, the people of God tried to maintain a right standing with God by upholding the law. And that's the system that the Pharisees still lived in. That was the air they breathed. That's where they found their superior identity. They were the best law keepers. But because no one can keep the law perfectly, sacrifices had to be constantly made 
to atone for sin over and over again. That's why God promised that there would come a Messiah, a final Lamb of God who would take away all the sins of the world and would establish a new and a better covenant. And here Jesus says that the changing of the guard covenantally came with the arrival of John, who prepared the way for this Christ. And Jesus calls the new covenant now, so covenant of law, new covenant, the good news of the kingdom of God. Mm, That's awesome. The good news that the door to the kingdom is not found at the top of an unattainable staircase of perfection. That is not where it's found. It's actually so low that anybody can access it if you're willing to army crawl through it. Anybody can. That's why sinners loved it, which we'll get to in a second. Galatians 3 gives us such a beautiful commentary on all of this. Galatians 3, 22 through 24. Track with me. But the Old Testament scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. God's law is impossible, but that was for a purpose. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It made us desperate for the Messiah. That was the design. Now, before faith came, the good news of the kingdom, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Jesus just revealed it. So then, the law was our guardian or our school teacher until Christ came in order that we might now be justified by faith. That's worthy of a lot of meditation. So it's no wonder sinners and tax collectors who knew they couldn't keep the law, yet they saw the difference, were so drawn to Jesus once they realized the kingdom was accessible to them through faith. There was a veritable stampede of sinners then into the kingdom, or as Jesus says in that strange phrasing, Everybody is now forcing their way into the kingdom once they realize it's through faith. I remember years back going to a concert, and of course I had the cheap seats, and there was some VIP standing room only in front of the stage, but there was of course a barrier there. And at one point in the concert, somebody pushed over the barrier, and there was a a flood of unworthy patrons (laughs) clamoring to get the good seat that they probably couldn't afford and didn't deserve to have. That's exactly what Jesus did. He knocked down the barrier to the kingdom with his cross and made it open to anyone by faith so sinners can now flood into a place that they could never have afforded and don't deserve to be. And it's all of grace to the glory of God. And so, of course, the sinners, who knew they were unworthy, once Jesus says that's the prerequisite, forced their way into the kingdom. Let me in. I can get in. amazing. Yet, Jesus, like a good teacher, he anticipates a possible response. Namely, since we are now in the covenant of grace, does that mean that the law is no longer binding? How quick we go there, right? What can I get away with now? And he says, absolutely not. In fact, Jesus goes in the opposite direction. Far from the law being abolished, 
he says it's more likely that all creation would just vanish, which it won't happen, than even the slightest pen stroke being unfulfilled or made void. And here's why. The law of God is not some arbitrary list of rules, but rather is a manifestation of God's holy and unchanging character. That's what the law is. And so to abolish the law is to abolish God. (laughs) Because God is holy, and so his kingdom will always be ruled by peace and shalom and holiness. Which is why we desperately need the gospel. Because we need a law-fulfilling substitute since it's not just going to be annihilated. One who can perfectly satisfy that law on our behalf. And again in Romans 8, 1 through 4, we get a beautiful exposition of this fact. Paul pulls up the hood and shows us under that statement of Jesus the, 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 the parts and how it works. He says this, So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how in the world is that possible? For the law of the Spirit of life, this new law, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh because we could never attain it in the flesh. God has done what we could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, check this out. Jesus condemned Not us, but Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. This is the glory of the incarnation, God coming to us and perfectly satisfying the last pen stroke of the law. This is the gospel. Not that the law becomes void. It could never become void. No, rather the gospel is the good news that God came to us, became man, and perfectly fulfilled it. And now through faith we receive all of Christ's law-keeping perfection and feel totally at home in the holy city of heaven because we have Christ's robe on. Of course I belong here. I've totally satisfied the law in Christ. That's the gospel. One might ask, stay with me, we're getting there. Does this mean then, so, so this might be a response, which Jesus addresses in a roundabout way. Does this mean then that we no longer need to even try to fulfill God's law because Christ has already done it? Well, that's like asking if once you get married, you can now stop loving your spouse. It makes no sense at all. Far from it. So it is in the Christian life. When you become a Christian, you get a new heart, not to follow some arbitrary list of rules, but a heart that is being sanctified into the image of Christ Jesus because that is glorious and holy and to be desired. The problem is that takes time. That's the difference between justification and and sanctification. The moment you're saved, declared totally righteous, and now God means to work that out for the rest of your life, to become what he's already created you to be. Not to earn your salvation, but because you have been saved We now have a new Lord, namely Jesus Christ, and he is Lord over all of our lives. When we desperately need the gospel that Jesus offers because we need a better justification and we need heart transformation, 
We need divine exaltation, and we need a law-fulfilling substitution. And our final verse teaches us that the gospel, far from nullifying the law, now gives us a holier aspiration. Far from nullifying the law on us, it actually gives us a holier aspiration now than, than just rule-keeping. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Hmm. Now this might seem like it comes out of nowhere, but it is actually a very intentional move on Jesus' part. He is putting his finger on a very sensitive nerve to again expose a specific hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They would try to appear righteous under the law while tipping their hat to terrible sin. See, everyone knew that sleeping with another woman while you were married is adultery. So some of the guys in the religious order would have their eyes on another woman that they liked. So to avoid committing adultery, they would conjure up a reason to get divorced that was totally not lawful, and the Pharisees would stamp it. So now they can take another wife and not commit adultery. And Jesus says, you've totally missed it. You haven't gotten away with anything. They had missed the entire heart of the law. They played origami with the law to suit their sinful passions. You can't just divorce and wife swap to avoid adultery. Because marriage is not simply a social contract. It is a lifelong covenant that bears the seal of God Almighty. And in God's eyes, once you're married, barring a clearly biblical reason for divorce, which there are, you are married, no matter what the state or the Pharisees say. Jesus tells them that if they're looking into the scriptures to try to find loopholes, you show how far from the kingdom you are because it reveals at its core a heart that does not see Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. This is a hard word from Jesus. It was meant to be because the Pharisees had very hard hearts. May we not. And friends, this is true for us as Christians. We must never assume on God's grace as a license to sin. Anyone who does this has not truly comprehended the grace of God on their life and probably has not truly come to the end of themselves where they've seen their estate and realized what Jesus Christ has done to save them from it. You don't quickly go, now how can I get away with all the stuff that Jesus hates? That's not what lordship looks like. And that's the point Jesus is making. The most sure way to know you're in the kingdom is evidence that your desires are being changed because you trust your Lord. And of course, this doesn't mean, friends, that we'll be perfect and never sin. Of course not. But it does mean that when we do sin, we hate it or we want to hate it, or there is some struggle happening in us. Those who are in the kingdom do not go to Scripture to try and explain it away because we are embarrassed because of culture. Rather, those who are in the kingdom live in glad submission to their Lord Jesus Christ. They trust him, even when they don't get it, by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit. There is so much more that we could say from these verses, but we'll end our exposition here. In these past weeks, we've heard Jesus proclaim the gospel through story and now through rebuke. 
And we see that there are really only two responses to Jesus Christ when he confronts us with his gospel compared to our gospel. One, we can be called out and see that the Father is waiting to sprint towards us to embrace us and repent of pigsties and run to the kingdom. It's wide open. Everyone's forcing their way into it once they realize. We can do that by the grace of God. Or we can ridicule and reject Jesus and live the rest of our time on this life in proud rebellion, living as our own God, and then find out at the judgment that we've been banished from the eternal kingdom. So friends, I plead with you to not reject Jesus Christ. I hope you see how superior his gospel is to any competing gospel in your life. The supremacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you don't just get forgiven, but you get exalted and caught up with Christ in glory, living as veritable prince and princesses in the new kingdom, with the pleasure of God beaming over you. Those are the options. So now we're going to transition into communion. For those of us who are Christians, I want us to ask ourselves, what other gospel has my attention right now? I want you to give it a name. I want you to turn afresh from it. I want you to bask in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have been justified by faith, that God has given you a new heart, that he is so for you that you will one day be exalted up into glory, that Christ has totally satisfied the law for you. You are total law keeper, perfectly holy. Dwell on this. If you are not a Christian, I'm just telling you and pleading with you, you need a better justification. We will all stand before God at the judgment. You want Christ to speak on your behalf. I would love to talk with you more about that. If something's stirring right now, do not ignore that. Fantasy football is a small thing. Salvation is a big deal. This is eternal stuff. So do business with God before we rush to the table. Don't do it in an unworthy manner. If you have sin you need to repent of, do that. Let this be a cleansing time. If there's somebody that you have wronged this week, commit to making that right today. And when you are ready, you may come to the communion table where we see the price of our redemption. We see the broken bread, which is a picture of the broken body of Jesus Christ for you and his perfect law-keeping. And then we see in the juice or the wine the blood that he shed so that you could be justified. It's amazing. Let's come here with a holy awe at this a service here and then a self-serve in the back. There'll be people to pray for you at the bistro table if you have something that you're wrestling with. Language we use at the axis is if you need a, a team lift, we would love to team lift something with you. Father in heaven, how can it be? You are such a glorious, gracious God and we settle for such lower things. I pray that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you, you, would, you would save those who are not saved and you would reorient the affections and the taste buds 
of our souls where they are still inclined towards sin and poison. I pray that we would love holiness, love beauty, love truth, that we would live lives of glad submission to our Lord Jesus Christ, not feeling like we need to apologize for your word to a culture that is totally against you, that we would be eager to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where yes, even you too can just stampede into the kingdom. This is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. I plead for it now. In Christ's name, amen. You may come when you're ready. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.